Good morning, good afternoon, good evening from wherever you may be. This is Snapshots in Hockey History. Thursday, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Snapshots in Hockey History, where we relive the hockey highlight reel. Just another day till the weekend. Let's go ahead and get the business out of the way first. Snapshots in Hockey History is a listener-supported podcast brought to you free of charge every single Monday and Thursday at 8 a.m. I will never ask you for a dollar out of your pocket for this podcast. But if you want to help us out, you want to do something nice, Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Of course, also, please share on social media. Follow us at Facebook at Snapshots in Hockey History and on Twitter at Snapshots In. Also, don't forget to subscribe to have the podcast delivered to you every Monday and Thursday automatically at 8 a.m. so you can kick your morning off right with an episode of Snapshots in Hockey History. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Snapshots in Hockey History is fake news. It's fake news. It's everywhere. My apologies to everybody. It looks like I'm 0 for 2 when actually trying to report or make predictions. First, I said I thought it was going to be Sean Pronger or Daniel Briere would take over the GM role for the Philadelphia Flyers. After all, the Flyers have a great track record of hiring former Flyers players to go ahead and run the organization. Both those guys have management experience. Clearly, I was wrong on that. Then, just last Monday, I said, hey, look at this. I just got this tweet. News alert. They're going to fire Hackstall. They're going to bring in Joel Quinville. Clearly, that didn't happen. So, from now on, moving forward, anything I say, just go ahead and ignore. Pay no mind to it. In fact, you know what? I'm not even going to make any noise. I'm not even going to say anything, at least for the rest of this episode. And maybe on Monday's episode as well. But after that, I'll get back to making predictions that probably make no sense. That's what I do. Anyways, now while you're really here to hear part two of our interview with Chris Contos. In part one, Chris told us an awesome story about having to travel to the Lumberyard to go ahead and sign his LA Kings contract and then talks about going down to the LA Kings, beginning the playoffs with them. In part two, we pick up where we left off. He talks a lot more about the playoffs, that series against the Edmonton Oilers, also who they played in the next round. He also talks a little bit about the Tampa Bay Lightning and some pranks he played over the years. There is one thing I wish I would have asked him and I completely forgot to do it, and that's what's the secret to beating Grant Fuhrer? After all, he scored like eight goals on him in like six games. So if anybody would know how to do it, anybody would know how to beat Grant Fuhr. I'm sure it would be Chris Contos. I'm going to have to follow up with him on that. Enjoy part two of our interview with Chris Contos as we review the 1989 LA Kings Stanley Cup playoff run. Game four is a heartbreaker. You end up getting your fifth goal of the series off of a Bernie Nichols shot. You've kept the streak alive. You scored six goals in five games. Clearly, whatever you're doing is working. Are you starting to develop chemistry with anybody? Is there, or who are you playing with that's making this possible? It's like Glenn Healy and stuff. They always joke about, oh, I just scoring goals off my butt off. You know, from Gretzky. <laughs> I didn't play with Gretzky. I played with Stevie Casper and John Tonelli, actually. That was my line. And uh, we were kind of like a third or fourth line, just a hardworking line, but I get thrown out of the power play and maybe a little bit off. If you look at my stats, I, I was a playmaker. I'd score two assists to every goal or an assist and a half to every goal. I was usually a playmaker. But in the playoffs, I just kind of got on the roll. And like I told you, you'll do whatever you can, you know, whatever you can do to contribute, you'll do it. So if shooting, you know, if shooting rather than passing was more beneficial for me at the time, that's, I just did that. I just passed the puck into the net, I guess. Luke Robitaille also scores his first goal in this game. And Luke, of course, is the president now of the LA Kings. What are your memories of with Luke? Oh, 
as a French guy, he and Steve Duchesne were always together. I always got along great with the French guys. I don't know why, but uh, they're always so friendly and so welcoming and just his his whole demeanor. Everybody loved Luke. It was like Lucky was just the kind of guy that if he, if he had an enemy, I'd be – I just – I couldn't understand it. Like it's impossible. This guy would just always be smiling and happy and everybody loved him. So, you know, it's just so fitting that a guy went on to, you know, just uh, continue to have success and get into the hall of fame and just uh, be the kind of guy that he was uh, while he played. And now even after he plays. Touching on something you said in a lot of locker rooms, was there a divide between the French and the other Canadian players? Was that common? I think years before that, it might have been. like, And I had always played with French guys and Euro guys and Russian guys. But I guess sometimes, like maybe going out to dinners and stuff, the guys would kind of clique and go in their own comfortable groups for whatever reasons. I mean, just because of maybe language or mm-hmm. you know, commonalities or whatever like that. But uh, when you pull the sweater on, there shouldn't be anything like that. Not if you're, uh, Not if you're a good team. I mean, good teams... They understand that we're all here, all you know, all for one, one for all. So you guys were beat in Edmonton, games three and four. You're returning back to Northland Coliseum for game six. At this point, the Oilers were fourteen and zero at home. How do you prepare against a team hearing that record, and how do you get ready for that? What's said in the locker room? Even with Robbie, was you know, here's our game plan, same preparation. You know, here's the guys we got a key on. Here's the guys that uh, tendencies to do this, goalie tendencies. You know, we're going to shoot. I don't think it's changed much from back then even to today. And you know, everybody buys into a a game plan and you try to execute it. And unfortunately, hockey's a game of mistakes. And the team that makes the least mistakes that night. That don't, that don't get capitalized on is the team that usually uh, celebrates at the end of the game. Do you remember if you guys, what the game plan was, if you guys were playing a system or anything like that? At, at that time, you know, you just want to make sure you're on the right side of your, the, the guy you're checking. Like, you know, you don't uh, miss checks or try to sprint down the ice without knowing that you guys have got the puck because the opposition that you're playing against, that's what they dwell on. They, they look for any mistake so they can go back and bury it and put you behind the eight ball. And then once you're behind, you, you have to play a little different, and then you can get yourself into a lot of trouble real quick. You guys end up winning that game 4-1. to one. You end up scoring another goal. Jim Weimer, Lucky Luke, as well as Mike Allison also get goals. Kelly Rudy, though, is getting a lot of attention for his goaltending. As a goalie, how, where where would you rank him? You know, you had Patrick Waugh, you had, uh, let's see, Eddie Belfour around that time. Where would you rank him as one of the goalies in the league? At that time, he was he was on the on the top of his game, and he was like whether he was swimming, making saves, like jumping and unorthodox kind of stuff, like Dominic Hasek. He was he was he was on. And when he got hot, he was, he he could be as good as any goalie in the world. So that sets up Game Seven in the Forum. And Bruce McNall actually invites President Ronald Reagan to come in. And it's the 80s. I know it's Laker country, but let's talk a little bit about the atmosphere around town. Is L.A. becoming a hockey town at this time? At that time, it, that's all they were talking about. Yeah, I mean, the Lakers were, I think, I, I went to a few of the Laker games on off days. And they were still like a great uh, organization and everything, but... Uh, at that time, hockey had just jumped right up, you know, right neck and neck with them. It, 
especially with the Gretzky factor and, and everybody watching the, uh, who's going to win between Gretzky and his old team. Kings win 6-3, to three and you score your eighth goal in the playoffs. What do you remember about Game 7? I can remember being up in the third and the crowd just, you know, just a constant, you know, just loud and they just couldn't, but they were just like with us and so excited. And like they, I'm sure if I was in the crowd, I'd be like, we're experiencing some history. This is like unreal. And, uh, you know, it was just uh, electric from the start of the third period till the end. It was just like, you know, bring it home, bring it home. And we just, we just kept uh, sticking to our plan and, I think I remember Gretzky scoring an open netter and running on the ice, and that was like the icing on the cake. The Kings end up winning Game 7, as I mentioned. This is the first playoff win for the Kings in over 15 tries, I think, or like 15 years, something along those lines, that you guys end up making it out of the first round. So uh, Dave Taylor is quoted in the LA Times as saying, this is a big step for LA Kings hockey. We knocked out the Stanley Cup champions. I know this is the first time that the Kings have made it out of the first round. But is part of the reason the victory is so sweet is because it's against the Oilers. Yeah, that's that was the uh, creme de la creme because the whole hockey world wanted to know what was going to happen with Gretzky's old team, and they still had a powerful team. They were really good, and everybody just—I don't know—I'm trying to think of something today to compare it to where uh, maybe the same sport or a different sport. Uh, well, that's the thing. I don't think, looking back on it, that there really is anything to compare it to. It was unreal, <laughs> I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, kind of like Washington winning, like you're you're from Washington, kind of like the Ovechkin factor, and he just couldn't win, and he couldn't win, and he couldn't win. Kind of everybody's starting to feel bad for a guy who's got all these scoring titles and accolades, and he just can't win. And then, you know, everybody wants to, you know, they get to the finals with the uh, Cinderella story of the, the Knights, and they finally they finally break through, and everybody wants to see that. So, I mean, it was good for hockey as well. Well, as you mentioned, it was – things are buzzing around L.A., and I imagine it's kind of like how things have been in Washington lately here where hockey's everywhere. Did you ever go to the Forum Club or have any time to kind of explore the city a little bit during this time? Not a little bit. Uh the forum club meeting the uh, after the games. Yeah, yeah. We, most of us would go up, and you know, wives or girlfriends would be up there, and we'd spend a little bit of time there before we uh, went and got something to eat and shut her down for the night. The Calgary Flames just wrapped up their series by beating the number eight seed Vancouver Canucks with an overtime goal from Joel Otto. What were your thoughts on the Calgary Flames during this era? Oh, the Flames were no. I mean, as we all know, they won the cup that year yep. so they, they were they were a tough team as well but honestly like after that emotional seven game series with the uh the Oilers I, I just didn't feel that same in intensity in the games that we played against them we kind of stuck with them for a little bit in game one and it's almost like once they uh, once they got the upper hand on us we just never really recovered I'll tell you you got to give yourself more credit for your memory because game one was a uh, sellout in Calgary with 20,000 fans. It was a 4-3 to three overtime loss. But Coach Robbie Fatorik is quoted as saying exactly what you just said. He says, we kind of fell into a shell. We have a tendency to change sometimes and go away from our game plan. It's normal kind of response to want to protect the lead. They kind of forced it. 
but we forced ourselves into more of a shell than we wanted to be in. I was going to ask if you think that's a fair statement, but I think that pretty much summarizes exactly what you just said. Yeah. That, you, you were asking me, how did it feel when you were like earlier in our, in our interview? Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that that feeling that I did feel when you were asking me how I felt for the earlier, it, it wasn't there. Just wasn't and, there. and you try to manufacture it and you try to do anything you can to get it. It just never happened. I, I don't know. It, it just didn't feel the same no matter how much we tried. Shortly after the game, people put the dots together and there's a trade that hadn't been completed. Earlier in the year, Kelly Rudy came over in a trade with the Islanders and there was to be a, a player to be named later. And your name is actually floated out there after game one. Is that a distraction? You know, I wouldn't even have known about it until today. I had no idea about it. Really? So it was no, it was, for me, it was no distraction. No. It was, uh, there was an article about it in the LA Times and it might have just been just that speculation or something. I just was curious if it ever made it back to you. Yeah, no. And I wouldn't have read the papers at the time anyway. I just, you know, when you're in the playoffs, you just, you know, go to bed, get up go to morning practice, go to a pregame meal or meal in between, go to the game, you know, right. you're just in, in fact, I think sometimes we even, like when you're on the road, like it's all business. And then even at home, sometimes we had rooms to not even have to go back to family or anything in between, just, you know, sleep in the room like you would on the road and go right back to the game. So the series stays in Calgary for one more night. The flames drop the hammer on you guys end up winning eight to three. They ended up dominating with 52 shots, and the Kings only took like something like 20 shots. When I think of the Flames of the 80s, I think of their dynamic offense. I mean, you had Theo Fleury, Doug Gilmore, Joey Mullen. But how was their defense? We don't really hear a lot about that. All I remember is they were big, mean, solid, stay-at-home, not flashy. And they just, they just played textbook big mean defense no that's <laughs> a great way to describe down. it yeah and it just shut us down you know that's that was the bottom line that was a, a really rough game i know earlier in the game bernie nichols punched mike vernon in the head but the real rough stuff came towards the end of the game bernie nichols was saying was quoted as saying in the la times if i were jim poplinski i'd be embarrassed the guy is six four and he's hiding behind wayne that's embarrassing <laughs> do you remember this melee at all with poplinski and wayne and i i don't I wish I did, but I don't. No worries. No worries. Several players were involved, Barney McSorley. I think it was probably just a combination of frustration from everything I picked up from what you're saying. Yeah. You're heading back to L.A. You're down 3 nothing against the Taladin Flames teams. In a situation like this, you've said that the excitement wasn't there. What do you do as a pro athlete to try to get yourself excited? Ritually, you still go through everything to try to get it going. But I don't know. I can't explain. Sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. And it just felt like, like as a group, it just, we, we just couldn't get it going. Like, like I said, in the first game, we felt like, hey, we're right there with them. But then their D might have just kept shutting us down. And guys kind of, I don't know if it's like ultimate fighting when you go against your opponent and you know he's just stronger. At that time, they just, they just were a little bit better than us, especially after we'd spent a lot of energy and the series before it was just it was an epic series i feel like and, the emotion uh, might have been drained in that first series yeah, by the time you got to yeah. the second one there wasn't a lot in the tank left absolutely and that's that's the way i would categorize it game three is a five to two win for the flames in los angeles you're down at this point three oh and game four needless to say ends with a five three loss yeah. and it's a sweep sometimes teams they might get eliminated but they still feel like making it further than they ever had is a victory 
Was that the feeling here? I'm sure the the effort was there. I mean, we were trying, and you know, Vernon was on top of his game if he was in that that night, which I think he was. And you know, the scoring chances, the, the quality chances, you know, just you know, they they were just few and far between. And unless you're getting lots of them, and you know, matching them punch for punch the whole game, it just it just doesn't happen unless you're lucky and a Rudy just. You know, he'd have to stand on his head and just be like out of his mind. The city was then this wasn't one of these situations where I know that sometimes a younger team, if they make it out of the first round and make it to the second round, they're still proud of their accomplishments, even though they didn't get to go all the way. Did you guys feel this was a disappointment or did you still feel this was an accomplishment? Well, for me, it was, you know, coming back from Europe, it was an accomplishment, but it's still a disappointment. But then. Looking back now, the the Flames went on to win the Cup that year. So, you know, you did lose to the Stanley Cup champ. So, you know, it's not like you you got beat by some other team that went out in four games the next round. Meanwhile, you scored nine or ten goals in this series. You had an unbelievable run. Next year, John Drews would would have a similar run where Drews went on the loose. Let's talk about (laughs) you for a second. What kind of attention are you getting now? as a guy that's putting up all these goals on the board the next season. Well, just in general, are you the following season? Are people coming up to you in the city? Are different GMs reaching out to your agent, anything along those lines? Well, I signed a one-way contract with Rogi because he was kind of, it's kind of unfortunate. Uh, I believe Rob Fatorik got fired that summer and they brought in a guy by the name of Tom Webster, who was uh, coached the Rangers and, he was with the Rangers when I was with them as a young guy. I'd had a contract problem. I'd sat in hockey until Christmas, kind of like Nylander's doing right now, trying to get moved because mm-hmm. there, was, there was no way I was going to make the team. They had penciled me in for the minors right away, and unfortunately he was the coach of the minors. And it's kind of like what goes around comes around. I got sent to uh, Phoenix, which wasn't the worst place to get sent to on a one-way contract. Um so I was, uh, I got sent to the International League right away. I, uh, I was doing okay in training camp, but it was almost like, no, nope, the uh, powers that be, you know, I, I didn't go there in bad shape or anything. It's just, that's the business. It is it's just, what it is. Somebody felt a little bit differently than maybe a prior coach did. Nothing personal, <laughs> just kind Nothing of that. personal, yeah. Kind of that yeah. feeling. It happens. Believe me, it happens. Was this run one of your favorite moments in your hockey career? Yeah, but then I I got another sniff back in the show in 92 with the uh, expansion Tampa Bay Lightning. So I burst onto the scene there with another shining moment. I scored four goals opening night, which was a record for like, I don't know, 10 or 12 or 13 years till Martin St. Louis tied it. Uh, just four goals in a game with the Lightning. I had 27 goals with them, and uh, I got a chance to play. Uh, Unfortunately, I hurt my knee about 54 games in at Maple Leaf Gardens. I hurt my MCL. I couldn't play the rest of the season. And then uh, I had a small contract problem with the Esposito brothers. And I feel like we could do in another entire episode on just oh, that one game. No. <laughs> I should write a book. <laughs> in, Saint, in, in Chicago. And before we go, I know we were kind of on the you, – first of all, you've been unbelievable. Thank you for your time. Talk to me about the lightning situation. I mean – did you guys even know who the owners were? It seems that that was like a shrewded mystery. No, it's just uh, Phil had uh, done some really creative things and uh, got the NHL to agree to allow an expansion team there. And 
Japanese investment or whatever investment to get it going. But the bottom line was they turned the old fairgrounds into a hockey rink that held just under 11,000 people or something like that. And hockey got started and I was proud to be a part of it and be a part of their history. And like I said, we just had a 25 year anniversary where they brought most of us back and we, we did a, a fan appreciation thing back at the old uh, the fairgrounds. They had the uh, arena set up again, and they had X's where it scored my goal in the, on the concrete, which was kind of cool. Oh, that's and, cool. Yeah, it was really neat. They, they treated us first class. It was fantastic. And all I can say is that organization is like a, a model for the NHL now with the way they've, they've run it, the way they've built it up to what it is, and uh, it's, uh, it's first class. Is there anybody that you – you know, you were close with those guys on that Lightning team, it sounds like. Was there anybody throughout your career that you've remained close with? Not not so much. I mean, I see guys at alumni events, and I was a bit of a prankster. So they're, oh, Kotze, I remember that time you did, uh, yeah. And we're all good friends, and it's like, you, have, you know, a day doesn't go, but like, it's like you saw them yesterday, and everybody's getting older, fatter, balder, you know, what, you know, how time goes on and people age and, but we're, we're still kids at heart and we see each other and we, you know, we hug and we're asking them, well, how are your, how's your family? How's your kid doing? How are your kids doing? Or just catching up. And, uh, you know, we all, we all move away to different places. You know, a lot of us come back to our, where our roots are. And so it doesn't allow us to be, uh, unless you've retired and stayed in the city where you played, it's, it's hard to stay in touch. Last question. You say you were a little bit of a prankster, and I don't want you to throw anyone under the bus or, or put yourself in a bad situation here. But do you have anything that maybe you could share that was one of your favorites that you pulled off? Uh, okay. Um, uh, so I was when I was in Pittsburgh, I was I – was, uh, the, the coaching staff and management pulled me in. They said, you know, you're out with Craig Simpson and you're drinking too much and you're pulling him down. I said, well, first of all, I don't drink. And so they kind of labeled me as like a, I don't know, a bad act or something like that, which was so far from the truth, but that's just the way it is. So as a guy that, you know, doesn't drink back in the day when guys like their pops and going out and having fun and stuff, you have to do something then to, to fit in. So mm-hmm. I was kind of a prankster. I, there was a movie called Fletch back in the day. Oh yeah. And, uh, when I was in Switzerland, I met a guy that uh, built dentures and I, I'd go after as a hobby and I'd build these cool dentures that if I put them in totally changes the look of you. And I'd go and, uh, and put on a, like a hat with some hair and the glasses and I'd become like an alter ego. And I, one time with the uh, the lightning, I lined up before practice, and I was getting autographs <laughs> from, from the guys. And then, and then I got all their autographs on the clipboard and stuff, and even Terry Crisp and all the guys, and they didn't have a clue. Because I'd done this at the Olympics, you know, with Team Canada, Tom Rennie, and they were, like, ready to fight me because I was taking the guy. I was taking uh, Paul Correa to the – to the security to have his passport checked and stuff. And the coaches were going crazy and, you know, they didn't know it was me and I was doing a French accent. So anyway, so I get all, I get all their, I get all their autographs and stuff. And then I, I, I go into the dressing room and guys are trying to stop me and I go in and I sit down in my stall and then I pull the stuff off and then their, their jaws hit the ground. And they're like, Oh, God, see that? I've never seen anything like that. You know, just funny stuff like that. So 
then they've got me doing it on the road and different, you know, different teams that I'm on and just fun stuff like that. Just, they know me as a prankster back in the day. That's what I did. That's so. the great stuff. I mean, that was, that was harmless. It was fun and uh, harmless and fun. Yeah. You that's... do anything to fit in and, you know, pick up some magic and do magic and stuff for them. So they love that stuff and, you know, just, just stuff to fit in. Well, that's awesome. Well, I'll tell you what, tell everybody what you're up to now. I know you have your own company. Uh, you're living up in the Toronto area, about a hundred miles North of Toronto. What are you up to now? I just have a digital print business where we do everything from business cards, flyers, banners, vehicle wraps, websites. I uh, do that kind of stuff. And, and uh, just uh, grinding. I used to be a skilled guy on the ice. Now I'm a grinder. <laughs> just go to work, go to work every day and just, uh, just do lots of work, just uh, paying bills. What's your website address if anybody needs to order some products from you? Prosmarketing.com. P-R-O-S marketing.com. I love the last story that he talks about in this interview where he talks about pranking his teammates and doing magic tricks to make them laugh. I just thought that was funny and harmless and just an all-around great story. The Capitals vs. Pens is about to start, and you know me, I'm a Washington, D.C. boy, so I've got to sign off. We'll see you on Monday for another episode of Snapshots in Hockey History. Talk to you then.